Dear listener, we hope that you've been enjoying the variety of podcasts that we have on our network. Now is your opportunity to help us by telling us a little more about you. Please visit jcastnetwork.org survey and complete our listener survey so that we can learn more about you and your listening habits. Again, please visit jcastnetwork.org survey. Thanks so much. You are listening to Sermons with Rabbi David Seth Kirchner, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I know it's, it's a little late for summer and there's a hot kiddish waiting, uh, so I, I don't want to take too much of your time, but I, um, I do want to share a thought with you about what begins tonight and tomorrow for Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. And I'm going to start by telling you that this is a holiday that I no longer commemorate. I'll be here in shul tomorrow, uh, or tonight, I should say, and um, I'll, I'll do all the things that I'm required to do as a rabbi, but I don't believe in it. Now, some of you might say, oh, you don't believe in Tisha B'Av, you might not fast in Tisha B'Av because you're a rabbi and we know you, being a rabbi, you're just a liberal guy and liberal guys don't follow things anymore. And I would tell you, well, that's really not the reason. In fact, if you were to look at me on paper, you wouldn't see me as only liberal. When it comes to a woman's right to choose, yep, very liberal. When it comes to um, inclusivity for openly gay, lesbian, bisexual, queer, transgender people into our community, absolutely, quite liberal. When it comes to issues about Iran and foreign policy, you would put me in the category of people who are hyper hawkish. So I don't think it's easy to put someone into one direct category on these things, and that's not the reason why I don't fast on Tisha B'Av. I'm gonna tell you the reason I don't fast on Tisha B'Av, and I'm gonna try and um, make it relevant for all of you. Been following the Olympics? Been following Israel in the Olympics? Okay. Israel was snubbed twice during this Olympics. The first one was a case of going to the opening ceremonies. There were um, shuttles of buses that were taking the different delegations to, from the place where they were being housed to the opening ceremonies, and the Israelis were slotted to get on a bus with the Lebanese. Well, the Lebanese got on the bus first, and then they shut the door before the Israelis could get on board. And then, when the Israelis told the driver, who was not Lebanese, he was from Brazil, to open up the door, the Lebanese delegation stood at the front door and would not allow them to get on. In order to prevent an escalation of a moment, right there at the Olympics, one of the commissioners that was overseeing the transportation got a private bus for the Israelis, and they were taken to the opening ceremonies. Now, who here was really bothered by that event? Raise your hand. Okay. Anyone know what the aftermath was? So the aftermath was that the Lebanese were sanctioned by the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, for that behavior, and warned that if they did any other thing against any other country during the time of these games, that they would be all dismissed as a delegation from Rio. Who here knew that? Two of you. Two of you. You follow the judoka, which I guess is a combination of judo and karate. It's an Olympic sport. There are a lot of sports out there I don't understand, but this is an Olympic sport. And yesterday there was a match between an Israeli and an Egyptian. Anyone follow this? Okay. The Israeli 
went against the Egyptian and the Israeli won. His name is Or Sasson and he won. And he actually medaled, he got a bronze medal for the Israelis uh, in this sport. After he defeated the Egyptian with two takedowns, he did the traditional thing that is done in the sport and that you bow and then extend and shake hands with that who you competed against. That's the ethic of this sport. But the Egyptian competitor refused to shake the Israeli's hand, refused. The Israeli then followed him to shake his hand and the Egyptian nodded his head in this way and walked away and the Israeli then went back to his corner where he was supposed to go, looked like a mensch and went on. All of you see that? Who here was disgusted by that event? Okay. Anyone know anything else that happened in that process that I left out? What's that? That's correct. There were two things that happened. One, the entire crowd of thousands of people that were gathered to watch that match booed the Egyptian for his refusal to shake the Israeli's hand. Public condemnation by a relatively neutral country in Brazil with no special favoritism towards Egypt or towards Israel. And again, a sanctioning from Egypt and that player in particular from the IOC and the player said, you don't need to sanction me, I quit the sport, I'm never gonna play again. Now there are some people who look at those events and they say, woe to us, this is repulsive. Look at the anti-Semitism that is being showered upon us. It will never stop, I can't handle it anymore. They won't even shake a Jew's hand, an Israeli's hand when he beats them in Judah. I understand that, I get it. But I tell you from the depths of my heart, that is not how I feel when looking at this case. At this case in particular, I feel, oh my God, 70 years young, a country 70 years young, and we sent more athletes with only seven or eight million dollar, seven or eight million people living in Israel than countries with 50 and 60 million in their population. And by the way, they had some award that was kind of trivial of who were the best dressed of all of the opening ceremonies. Did you follow this? Israel ranked third. Two? Oh, I, I demoted them. Who cares? They're in the top five of 200 countries, right? An arbitrary judge on these, these concepts. So I'm thinking, we have an Olympic delegation that is significant in 70 years. We have an athlete that beat the Egyptian fair and square. He won and he medaled. And he did the right thing. And the audience rebuked him. And for me, to think about 44 years ago when Olympians were killed and they didn't even stop the games. They didn't even properly memorialize them four years ago when it was the close to the 40th, when it was the 40th anniversary. And at this Olympic games, they did commemorate their death. I see it through a lens of, look how far we've come. Look at what we have to celebrate. Look at the living, breathing component of change that we should be a part of. Look at an IOC that can wag a finger in the face of the Lebanese and say, you behave away again this way, and you will not be allowed to compete in your games. Whereas before it would have been swept under the rug and ignored. That to me shows an evolution and progress. I have people come into my office 
They have all types of issues with their family. Some are getting divorced, some are in spats with their siblings, whatever it is. And in almost every single case, what bothers one person about the next is a behavior that's never gonna be changed. So use divorce as an example. And they're still sharing kids and they have to deal with financial issues and timing and custody and all the other things that go with it, which never ends, by the way, never will end. And one spouse is always mad at the other saying, you know, but, but he's so irresponsible or, or she's never on time. Or they, and they never embrace the reality of this is who the person is. This is what's going on and this is where they are. They will only celebrate when the unthinkable or the miraculous happens. Ladies and gentlemen, Israel lives in the Middle East. It lives in a very tumultuous place. And it's surrounded by people who are part of a different and quite violent at times religion. This idea that we have in our heads that we're gonna sit with people from Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Lebanon and sing Kumbaya while drinking from a Hafinjan is silly. It's just silly. But sadly, it's the paradigm that so many people have of what success looks like. And I would argue it's unrealistic. Success looks like competing against an Egyptian and winning or losing and shaking hands afterwards. And if not, letting the world condemn those that behave in an unsportsmanlike manner. 40 years ago, we never could have dreamt that. So what does that have to do with Tisha B'Av? One more quick story. From this bima, for too many years, I said a blessing every single Shabbat for the redemption of Gilad Shalit, who was a soldier who was kidnapped from within Israel and held hostage for the release of a thousand prisoners to go back to Gaza, and then he was released from Gaza from Hamas terrorists. It was a very holy moment for me when he was released. But the Shabbat he was released came back to this bima, and we did not say a prayer for his release. We stopped. And we haven't said a prayer for his release since. Why? Because I think God heard our prayer. God and the Israeli people heard our prayer, and it was listened to. It was heard. And as a result, we don't need to come and make some prayer. And there are people who still make a prayer in its place. But I think it loses its potency when we do that. Tisha B'Av is a holiday that commemorates the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. It's a sad day. In Shivas Arbatamuz, the three weeks that happened before was about the, um, the orchestration of the forces surrounding Jerusalem that eventually brought down the city of Jerusalem and the temple and destroyed what was our centerpiece of the Jewish world. But in the last 70 years, and almost now in the last 50 years, it'll be 50 years this June, we have celebrated a different reality, a reality that 2,000 years of our ancestry never knew. And that reality has been the state of Israel. And in 50 years, we have rebuilt Jerusalem. And I defy any of you to go to Jerusalem and spend an hour in Jerusalem. Walk in the markets, go to the old city, have coffee in any of the shops, and not feel a sense of miracle that you're witnessing. And I don't know most rational people, I, know, I, I don't know any rational person that really believes we wanna rebuild another temple and offer sacrifices in Jerusalem. I can tell you, not only do I not wanna do it, I would fight any of those that look to do it. I think we have rebuilt 
the equivalent of what we want in a temple. We have a Western wall where people can pray. We have another section where egalitarian people can pray. We have people who are orthodox and non-observant living together, shopping together, working together, fighting with one another over political disaccord and all things that go in between. In my estimation, Higanu, we have arrived. We have arrived at having a prayer answered that we have said for 2,000 years about rebuilding Jerusalem. So I have a really hard time sitting and fasting and lamenting, not only about the destruction of Jerusalem, but about how we should rebuild it. Because in my estimation, that prayer has been answered. And in my estimation, it is no different than the prayer for Gilad Shalit. And in many ways, no different than the prayer that some of us have in a secular form of allowing Israelis to be integrated into society where they can be part of a nation and represent that nation in the Olympics and fight and win on merit alone. That's a prayer that's been answered. That doesn't mean there aren't other things in which to pray for. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have moments of remembrance and lamentation. I commemorate Yom HaShoah, a day of remembrance of the Holocaust, and I commemorate Yom HaZikaron, a day where we remember the fallen soldiers who fell defending our homeland, so we can have a homeland. And I'm all for a holiday that commemorates the destruction of the temple, but not a holiday that pivots in its liturgy to not only commemorate, but to aspire to rebuild it because we have done that, in my estimation. And I think to be part of a living, breathing, aware religion, it must be dynamic. It cannot only be historical. And when we fall back into the really comfortable place of saying, we were always persecuted, and we will always be persecuted, and we will always have a reflex of responding to persecution, Look at these Lebanese, how can they be so cruel to the Israelis? This is disgusting. Look at this Egyptian, how terrible it is. We all fit into that like you know, our most comfortable shirt. Just put it on and we feel at home. But we're not used to whatsoever the notion of an entire audience booing that behavior. We're not used to the notion of administrations and governments standing up to support us. And that's worthy of celebration. That's worthy of pivot. That's worthy of seeing a glass that's half full as opposed to continuing to be emptied. And that's why I choose on this holiday not to fast. Not because you might want to paint me as liberal or hawkish. I choose not to fast because this part of our dream has been answered. And if it's been answered, you must realize it. You must appreciate it. You must pause and celebrate it. Doesn't mean there aren't other things to look at. But this is a moment for us, I think, to come together and to realize the goal that we always hope for is here. And if we can't do that, then what's the purpose of prayer in the first place if we're not prepared to have those prayers answered? I hope on this Tisha B'Av we can remember what led us to the destruction of the temple this notion of sinat chinam, of hatred between each other. And we can pivot away from it. And we can also realize blessings that stand in front of us, as opposed to glossing them over to a place, a comfortable narrative of oppression, hatred, and uh, 
being seen as the other, just because that's where we're comfortable. Time to break away from that model. So for those of you who will see me tonight at, uh, at Tisha B'Av services and then wonder why I'm going out to dinner afterwards, you now will have a little bit of light on that situation. 